Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there! How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators get to talk about the board games that we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Definitely a board game podcast. The Tabletop Bellhop. Of Dice and Men. Kavri. The Rat Hole. Dice and Dragons. The Meeple Dungeon and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please remember to check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. Sit back and enjoy. This is Royce Calverly from Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it's not. And this is What You've Been Playing Wednesday. So, what have we been playing? Well, Grace and I played two games over the holiday weekend. We played Pokemon Labyrinth by Ravensburger, which is a new version of the 1986 classic, but it's basically exactly the same game with a little bit of a Pokemon theme thrown on the top. And then we played the 2021 game Pachacuna. Uh, Pachacuna is from Treaser Games. It's a neat game about llamas. It's uh, very uh, environmentally friendly. It involves uh, various people in Peru who are involved in the manufacturing. So we've got a brand new game and a fairly old game. And we played them one after the other. And it wasn't intentional. But I figured I really wanted to talk about these games together because... Having played one right after the other, it turns out that they are surprisingly similar. So let's start with the easy ones. Both are for two players. Both involve moving a pawn along various paths to accomplish your goals and setting up those paths. The difference is, though, it gets a little more interesting. So one, Labyrinth, is a game for kids. It has a community-recommended 6-plus age range. The other is, while it says 8 plus, is definitely more of an adult game. It has a very cute llama components and theme, but the actual gameplay is much more adult. Labyrinth's rules, they can be summed up in two sentences. Real simple, insert a tile, move your marker along the path, achieve your goal. That's it. It's a game that anyone can learn in about two minutes. I can teach this to literally anyone. They will be up and running and playing in less than two minutes. Pachacuna is basically the same game. You're going to turn a tile instead of inserting a tile. You're going to move your llama, and you're going to get a goal. But the designer has added a few more complexities. Uh, they have set have set locations, so instead of having to just travel around the board to achieve certain goals, you have to go to very specific villages. And each village has demands. They have wants. So you will have a pick-up and deliver mechanism where you're bringing the resource to that, that that village wants to that village. And then because there is a resource, there's also a resource economy. And this is probably the biggest difference. You get uh, a surplus of these resources that then you can spend to either get more llamas, which means you can move twice as far, do multiple movements in a turn. But you will also be able to spend them to turn extra tiles. So you can actually, instead of just worrying about where you want to go, you have a little bit more of a opportunity to move tiles to block other people. All right. It's a given. I tend to prefer heavier Euro games. And it would seem like a no-brainer that Pachacuna would be the game for me. But initially, at least, both Grace and I prefer Labyrinth. And it comes down to a few things. One, the setup is significantly less onerous for Labyrinth. In Labyrinth, you're going to be putting a bunch of tiles onto the board. It's a little bit fiddly, but it's fairly quick and not too big a deal. Pachacuna, on the other hand, consists of over 50 uh, two-level tiles. So one level is sort of the, the plain and one level is the mountains. 
and the mountains are three different shapes that would then block your movement. So you can't you can move through the plains portion of a tile, but not through the mountains. So as they rotate, they will then block your path or open up paths. On a side note, when you get this game, when you get Pachacuna, you're going to need to stick all of these mountains onto the tiles. They don't come pre-sticked. You have to they come with like a double-sided sticky ticker tape that you then like apply the mountains. It's not a big deal. It takes maybe half an hour to do it, but it's just strange. It feels like something that would normally be done as part of assembly. So having to do it is just a little bit weird. But anyway, back to setup. With Pachacuna, as opposed to Labyrinth, there are basically two ways that you can set up all these tiles, and they have to be set up exactly matching one of these two ways. And how they do this, they give you a poster that you basically put on the table, you put the tiles on top of the, pa the poster inside of a frame, and then you can slide the poster out. It's not hard, but it does take some time, and it is surprisingly fiddly to make sure that all of the mountains start the same way. Why do you need to do this in Pachacuna and not in Labyrinth? Well, it comes down to the main nature of the game. Pachacuna needs balance. Pachacuna feels like an abstract strategy game where there is no luck. I guess both games technically are abstract strategy games. The difference is with Labyrinth, you might flip your goal and realize you need to go and find Snorlax or whatever it was in the original version. And it just so happens you already have a path to Snorlax, you're done. In Pachacuna, on the other hand, having that path is a much bigger deal. In Labyrinth, uh, it's fast enough. You have a lot more goals. You're going to get lucky on some of them, but so is your opponent, and it's going to balance out by the end of the game, and it doesn't really feel unfair. Maybe one person got it a little bit easier than the other, but it's so easy to make those paths, and most of the time you're going to be able to make the path in one turn anyway, that it really doesn't feel like you are being hurt if you don't get a lucky path really quickly. With Pachacuna, on the other hand, there are fewer goals, the board is bigger, and a lucky break is a much bigger deal. So if you had a random start uh, setup and it just so happens that one player can get to a village fast and easy while the other one has to go a longer route or something to that effect, it would be a noticeable difference and it would really make a difference. That lack of luck or requirement to have less luck makes Pachacuna, Pachacuna sorry, feel more serious and it eschews that luck to make it feel like an abstract strategy game. What really sets these two games apart, though, is not the setup, it's not the lack of luck or the, the balance. It's the take that or the aggressive play. In Labyrinth, you're going to slide a single tile. And while there's some opportunity to mess up the trail of your opponent, sometimes you're going to push them a little and go, ha, 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 In reality, making alternative routes is really fast. They're probably just going to be able to place that, that tile somewhere and immediately get another route through. It, you're not going to hold somebody up for very long. It's not a big deal. On the other hand, Pachacuna does two things. First, when you turn a tile to block your opponent, you mark it as turned, and your opponent cannot turn that same tile twice. So just if you turned it, that doesn't your opponent can't just turn it back. What that means in reality is that turning one tile could result in two, possibly even a three turn delay, depending on how bad it is, depending on where it is. And you might find that getting the alternative route is much, much more difficult. Plus, the routes are longer, it takes longer to get back and forth, and there are fewer turns, there are fewer uh, goals, so a delay in a goal of two or three rounds could make a big difference. This is a much meaner, more aggressive game than Labyrinth. Pachacuna is definitely one that rewards aggressive gameplay, and that's going to appeal to some people, but not so much to others. Which one is better? Uh, I can't say. It really is a preference. Which one do you like better? We our initial thought is we prefer Labyrinth, but I can see Pachacuna being one of those games where the more you play it, the more you would learn, the more it would, it would be one of those games that might improve as you're playing. So it'll be interesting to see where these two end up, where 
maybe Labyrinth just I've seen all it can do. Maybe that's it. Maybe it won't be exciting after a few plays. I don't know. Right now, I was surprised how similar they were. I was amazed how much fun I had playing both of them. But I think Pokemon Labyrinth gets it, if for no other reason, than it has Pokemon on it. I'm Royce Calverly. This is Definitely a Board Game Podcast. You can reach us at definitelyboard at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at BoardDefinitely. You can find us on Facebook at Definitely Board. And of course, our podcast is available wherever podcasts live. Thank you very much and have a wonderful week. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. If you've got a question for me, all you have to do is email me at questions at tabletopbellhop.com or visit our webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop. You're also free to hit me up on social media where I can be found as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, pretty much everywhere out there. Now, the question I'm answering today is, what you've been playing this past week, the first week of 2021? Happy New Year to everyone. While I'm not sure if this counts, my week started off with recording some unboxing videos live on Twitch. Now, I recorded unboxings of a few games I got for Christmas, including Lost Ruins of Arnak, Star Wars Unlock, and the Space-Based Command Station expansion. Now, in addition, I finally opened up my Hasbro Pulse Mythic Tier copy of HeroQuest, the new printing, and an Adventuria expansion, Ship of Stone. I then went on to get a couple of those to the table, starting with Lost Ruins of Arnak. Now, last year, it felt like every podcaster out there was talking about this game, and the majority seemed to love it, and so far, I'm on the same page. Now, at this point, Deanna and I have only played once, so I'm nowhere near having a final verdict on the game. But that one play was very good, even if we were completely lost. There is a lot going on in Lost Ruins of Arnak and not a lot of direction at the start telling you what you should do or which direction you should be heading. Now, for those of you who haven't heard the buzz, this is a mashup of deck building with nine different resources and worker placement with only two workers. You mostly use your cards to generate five of the resources which you keep between rounds that you build up and spend, or you're spending your cards instead to use the other resources which are travel to travel the board and explore and place your meeples up with most cards producing both types of resources. You have to choose, do I get the resources I build up and spend, or do I use my cards to travel? Now, another really fascinating aspect of this is that in this deck builder, except for a couple action spots and special abilities that let you draw cards from your deck in the middle of a turn, you are only ever going to draw from your deck a total of five times. That took me a bit to get my head wrapped around. Now, as I mentioned, our first game of Lost Ruins of Arnak was a big hit, especially with my wife, who has been asking to play again every night after the kids go to bed. We just haven't fit it in. There was always something else to get done. Next up was the introduction chapter of Star Wars Unlock. Now, none of us have played any of the Unlock games. While we've tried the Exit series, game, series of games and other murder mystery style puzzle games, this was our first Unlock experience, and I've got to say I'm impressed by the system. The combination of app and card deck works really well, and the way the cards interact is even very well designed. Now, the intro adventure is super quick and easy and took us under five minutes. While I was expecting something a bit more, something a little more crunch to it, it does do its job at teaching you how the cards interact with each other in the app. I did appreciate that this intro adventure was also Star Wars themed. I just expected to have some kind of generic same thing that's in every unlock box type of thing just to teach you the system. And it was cool that they actually threw in something Star Wars specific. Now, the next day, we played through the Escape from Hoth. This is the first mission of three that comes in Star Wars Unlocked, and this was even more impressive. What really impressed me here was the app integration and the various things we had to do with my phone in order to solve the puzzles. Again, no spoilers here, nothing to worry about. Now, most of the adventure was straightforward. Uh, we breezed through most of the puzzles, had to think about a few more, and we did get up on one for a few minutes. But then there was one puzzle that completely stumped us and we had to use a hint. It ends up we were thinking too much inside the box and not really seeing how much the rules could bend, I guess. Uh, we didn't break any rules, but there was definitely a way of interpreting things I didn't expect. 
Now, I'm guessing anyone with unlock experience would have probably gotten right past this hiccup and not even noticed it. But for our group, with me and my wife and the two kids, there was no way we were going to solve this one without the hint. So I gotta say the hint system was nice. It didn't solve it. It just told us, uh, gave it, pointed us in the right direction. We were able to get the puzzle with only one hint. Now, another issue I did have with Hoth, and this one's more serious in my opinion, is that we were penalized two minutes for a failure in the app. There was a part where you have to enter four codes. We entered in one code and got a eh, eh, and f- penalty. So we thought we typed in the wrong codes. We picked one of the other four to enter in first, and we put that in, and eh, eh, another penalty. It wasn't until then that I realized that our codes are right. We did the work. We had the answer to the puzzle, but it ends up in the app. What it really wanted was us to enter all four codes at once instead of one at a time. This wasn't clear on the app. I didn't realize that's what it wanted. So if we had the proper information, we had solved the puzzle we had the right info it was just a failing in the app that we got penalized for which i was a little frustrated by this made me think a feature for these games would be a a correction system at the end so at the end of the game you tell it you're done you've solved the game you hit the get your score and it lists all your penalties and gives you a chance to correct them because yes i'm sure some people could cheat at that point to be able to post something on twitter or whatever but in general i think it'd be awesome if there was a way to say hey I didn't get that wrong. I actually tapped the wrong spot. I was trying to tap one thing and it registered as something else. Or like us, I tried to enter one of four codes, not realizing it wanted all four at once. Plus, if they did this, you could type in why you want to put a correction. And this could be awesome feedback to Space Cowboy so they can improve their app in the future. Sadly, that's not the case at this point. So we're a little frustrated. So as it was, we scored four out of five. I'm not sure if we would have got five out of five if we didn't have that penalty, because we did use one hit. Now, overall, though, our entire family enjoyed our first unlock experience a lot. My kids in particular, including the 14-year-old, who at first thought the entire concept seemed dumb, ended up having a lot of fun. Now, one bonus I do like with this series of games is that you don't destroy anything while you're playing, so I can now pass on my deck from Escape to Hoth to a friend who can then play it themselves, which is pretty cool. Now, next up, over the holidays, I introduced my kids to Disney's sidekicks, and it didn't go very well. My oldest thought the game felt way too rushed and too hard. Uh, Her biggest complaint was that it went from, everything's fine, we're doing well, we're going good, we've um, rescued some heroes to, oh yeah, you're going to lose next turn if this happens, or this happens, or this happens. Of course, one of those happens. Now, my youngest thought the game was too complicated. There were too many different things going on. Every villain played different. Every bad guy had a different way of acting, different tokens meant different things, and each sidekick could do different things, and every sidekick had three powers to learn. There's too many tokens all over the place, and I don't know what's a garden, what's a villager, and so on. And another problem we ran into, besides her just being overwhelmed, is because she's shorter, the castle actually blocked her view of some areas, and there was a point where she made a move and didn't realize there was a guard at a spot because it was hidden behind the castle. So that's actually something I didn't realize having played the game before. The 3D castle can actually hinder your view of the board. Now, overall, the complaints of my kids does fit in what we had thought when playing with adults. Despite the way this game is branded, and the fact it's being sold at mass market stores like Walmart and Target and Toys R Us, this is not a kid's game in any way. This is a punishing cooperative game that happens to have a theme of Disney sidekicks. When we finished playing, I asked the girls what they thought, and they both said they were glad they played it. They're like, oh, I'm glad I got to try it. It was neat. I was glad I experienced it, but both of them said, I don't want to ever play it again. So there you have it, Disney sidekicks. Now, the last game I played this past week was a late night, early morning game of Nitwit with my wife. So at some point in New Year's, we'd had a few drinks. We'd already played Arnak. We were kind of sitting back in in my game room. And we're looking at the games in the shelves. And we started talking about each one because I need room. I'm out of, excuse me, I need room. I'm out of space in my game room. And we're like, oh, this game, do you think we can get rid of that one? Or you you hate that game? We should get rid of it. Oh, that we got to keep for sure. And then there were some were like, oh, you know what? We should give that another try. It's been 10 years since we played it, probably can get rid of it, but let's give it another try to see if there's like a sweet spot we missed or if we rekindle it uh, like we did recently with um, Castles of Burgundy. Had sat on my shelf unplayed for years. We played it recently and then fell in love with the game again. So we were going through the games on our shelves and I got to Nitwit and Deanna pointed out, she's like, I don't think I ever played that one. And I'm like, I re- the nights I remember playing it were New Year's where we often split into multiple groups and fair enough, she was probably in a different group. And I remember bringing it out to public play events at Brimstone CG Realm in easy mode. 
And I don't think she was at those events, or if she was, she probably went and played some heavier Euro while I played party games. So when we got to it, I'm like, hey, bring it down. This game's good. I got to show it to you. And we had a great time playing two full rounds. Nitwit is a fantastic game. It's the Venn diagram word game where you're placing down loops of string and then placing spools in the loops with where each loop has to hold at least one spool and new spools go into the gaps that don't contain other spools. At the end, you end up with all these spools on the table surrounded by various strings. And at the end of each string, you're going to attach a word. Then players are going to have to write down one thing for each spool that fits all the words attached to that spool. So you look at the spool, you look at which what it's ringed by, read those words, and then try to come up with a word or sentence or one thing that fits all of them. Like I said, you're basically doing a Venn diagram. I have been a fan of this game for a long time, and I am happy to say Deanna also really enjoyed it. She's like, wow, this is up there. She's like, I don't know if it beats out concept, but this is pretty solid for a party game. Now, one heads up about Nitwit. Things tend to go blue, adult, um, possibly vulgar, pretty quickly with this game uh, based on the words that come out. So what you want to do here is probably have a talk before you play with whoever you're about to play with to determine what types of words players are going to be allowed to use when you play. Well, that's it for my What You've Been Playing list for this past week. Be sure to check out TabletopBellhop.com, our weekly podcast as well, which we record Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern at Twitch, which also drops on Tuesday mornings at 2 a.m. You're also invited to join us Sunday for brunch at 1 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. And remember to send your questions to questions at TabletopBellhop.com. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good night and game on. Happy Wednesday. It's Chad from Of Dice and Men here to welcome you to 2022 with a scathing review of one of last year's favorite games, Sleeping Gods. Let's get to it. Sleeping Gods is a large adventure board game released in 2021 and produced through Kickstarter by Red Raven Games. You've likely heard of Red Raven Games and the game's designer Ryan Laucat, as they've had a number of successes over the years. Above and Below, Near and Far, Now or Never, Islebound, and a bunch of other games that all share the same designer, illustrator, and setting. There's no denying the success of the series, although the games never really landed for me. I gave Above and Below a try so many years ago and ended up trading it away, and despite rave reviews, haven't really considered diving back into the world. So then, when the end of 2021 rolled around, I did my usual look at the year's top releases and realized I hadn't played quite a few of them. If you skip past the panic buying and the convenient availability of the game and amazing stories, I ended up with a copy of Sleeping Gods on my table in the last week of 2021, determined to find that surprise I was lacking last What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I get the game set up, read through the opening walkthrough, and start playing. Sleeping Gods has you controlling a crew of sailors that have been whisked away to a hidden sea, accidentally banished alongside hundreds of other citizens to a realm where the gods hit the snooze button a few times, causing everyone to be trapped. You quickly learn that collecting relics from various locations in the hidden sea is your best bet to wake the gods back up and escape back to reality, so you set off on your new adventure. Sleeping Gods in those beginning stages is basically a skill check game, where a narrative book or game action prompts you to test a specific skill, you decide what resources you're going to spend to attempt to succeed, and then you see if you won or not. Which honestly isn't that big of a deal on its own. Heaven knows the majority of the games I really enjoy have that exact same mechanic. The problem in the early game with Sleeping Gods is you don't really have a lot of luck mitigation in that first hour or two, leaving you entirely at the mercy of a deck of cards. Your crew isn't very experienced, you haven't picked up a lot of items, and the fate deck has a 6 point variance. As a player, you can't do much more than shrug your shoulders and see what happens. The game gets much better once you've had the opportunity to build up your crew and collect a few helpful items. Now, if something bad happens, you have an opportunity to spend command points and resources to deal with it. It's no longer an issue of output randomness, but more like the resource management game Sleeping Gods is meant to be. Once I was a few hours into the experience, I had a much better time with it, although there was still a key tenant that really bothered me. The game doesn't really care if you fail. In almost all narrative skill check cases, if you fail your check, the game will kick you a little, but you'll proceed regardless. So the only thing you're really doing is a small resource spend to avoid damage between each choose-your-own-adventure paragraph. 
The only real challenge of the game is the resource management aspect. You'll die if all your crew is knocked out or your boat is damaged beyond repair, but when it comes to adventuring, there's not much more to do than read forward. Not to mention that ship damage and health are pretty much the only negative consequences. Sometimes you'll get the odd annoying character status, but there wasn't a lot of variety in failure. The fail-forward concept isn't necessarily a bad one. In fact, I prefer it to campaigns where you simply lose the round and have to restart. The problem here is that failure isn't something you want to avoid, but rather becomes something you consider. It reminds me a lot of my issue with Above and Below, where despite the interesting world building and writing, you ultimately just end up caring about the result, how many red cubes you get to place on the board. The event deck has a worse issue, where most of the time it simply gives you a fail condition and nothing else. It removes all the excitement and motivation to pass, instead just debating if you can handle the fail. Sleeping Gods does also have its own clever combat system, and I will say I enjoyed the combat puzzle for what it was. When you hit a monster, you place damage on a 3x3 grid, covering up the monster's health and or other status effects it can cause when it attacks you. It got a bit much to manage my entire crew of 9 characters playing solo at times, but there was a solid mechanic there trying to figure out which crew member was the best to attack, how to mitigate damage, who to hit first, and so on. It was a nice contrast from the skill checks where you had less control over the outcome. Between all those skill checks and combat is your ship phase, which is where a lot of your resource management comes into play. Each player takes the role of captain on their turn and decides which ship-centric action they want to accomplish before continuing the adventure. There's five different stations here, each with their own function, but there's generally not a lot of debate. It's likely there's one obvious thing you should do on your turn each round, based on your crew's health, fatigue, or supply. The ship phase quickly becomes the paperwork phase, where you simply go through the motions each turn. Narratively, Sleeping Gods does a great job of providing an open world for players to explore. It reminded me quite a bit of the recent Zelda game Breath of the Wild in that you're just given an environment to exist in, and it's entirely up to you how you want to go about it. Each little island settlement has its own characters and problems to solve, and while they often cross over, you really do get the feeling that you're interacting with a unique little piece of the world. The game counterbalances this freedom with a set three-part timer. Each time your event deck runs out, you resolve the end of part one, part two, or part three, which is the finale. The unfortunate part about that, and why I likely won't bother replaying the game, is the parts are set in stone. How the finale resolves is somewhat variable based on what you accomplish throughout the 10-ish hour playthrough, but even the 13 different endings are really only three different endings, two of them repeated several times. So yeah, I know a lot of people really enjoy Sleeping Gods, including Ryan from the host Bridge City Board Gamers podcast, and I don't want to yuck anyone's yum here. There's something to be said about how I felt compelled to see my campaign playthrough through to the end, finishing it just before New Year's Day. I just wanted to give anyone who might be on the fence about this game a little bit of context now that the second printing has arrived. For reference, my top 2021 game is likely Oath, so maybe that gives some perspective on my view. As is expected with any Kickstarter game, there are two expansions to Sleeping Gods that add even more content, but giving them a glance, I don't think there's a lot there that would have changed my mind. Anyways, I'm going to go back to sitting by my door and waiting for my copy of Townsfolk Tesla to arrive. You can catch our past episodes of Of Dice and Men on the podcatcher of your choice, and we hope to have a new episode up for the new year. Have a great week. Hello everybody, my name is Ilya. And my name is Tyler. Together we make up Cover, a couple that loves to play board games. That we sure do. We make a variety of content around board games on YouTube and post a lot of pictures on Instagram and Twitter. And thank you so much for having us back. It's been a while since we've been on a What You've Been Playing episode, but we are back and we're here to stay. Yeah, and as always, we're very excited to talk about the games that we've been playing. Yeah, so we'll do two this time around. And Tyler, why don't you kick it off for us? Aha! Well, I want to talk about Savannah Park. Mm. It's by Capstone Games Family, and it's just a fun tile-placing game. It's got this, like, big brain puzzle energy that just <laughs> involves, like, a lot of thinking because your board is essentially laid out as um, completely random, and everybody has the same tile. So think of 
Karuba, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. uh, think of Karuba in that sense. And then every turn, one person will go around calling a tile and you'll grab that tile and place it in a spot that is different from the spot you took it from. And you'll basically do that until all tiles have been flipped over to your color. But it's interesting because you have to connect all these species to these pawns and then also with one another so that you can make all of these cool like combo points. <laughs> it's very intuitive and quite easy to learn, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. so thinky and leaves you definitely coming back for more because there's so many different ways to play the game and to try it mm -hmm. because every player's churn really dictates the flow of the game because they could pick yeah. that piece that you desperately don't want them to pick so you have to really adapt yeah exactly and sometimes you don't even want to be picking the tile that like you really want to move you want to be picking a tile that would be more beneficial to open up a space for you mm -hmm. almost. That's what I and usually do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's very interesting to see it all come together and then at the end, like you're really crunching, um, trying to decide whether or not you're gonna give up points from the bushes, points from the trees. Mm -hmm. If you accidentally place a tile in the wrong spot, it could <gasps> oh, uh, just disappear at the that end. That is true. <laughs> There's trees on fire that mm -hmm. cause animals to leave. Yeah. The art in this game is really beautiful too, which is a huge win. And oh you, yeah, of you've course. grown it a ton because the first time we played, you did not do so well. I didn't. I don't think I understood the rules for the first time we played, <laughs> and then lately I've been playing like crushing really well. it. But there's a goal where you have to reach, I think, 200 points, and I still have not broken that yet. Yeah, it's definitely really tough to do. You have to almost mastermind the whole perfect. thing. Perfect. Yeah, it has to be perfect. But it really does. We'll get there. Definitely. Anyways, what about your game? So the one I want to talk about today is one of my favorite of all time is Space Base. Now this one's from Alderac Entertainment Group designed by John D. Clare. And we recently got to try the campaign, The Emergence of Shy Pluto. Yeah. So that's been really exciting because I've been wanting to play it for a very long time. It's been sitting at me and you know, we just took it out and we played it. We sure did, yeah. And I loved it. It was a really great way to integrate a way, like a storytelling element to the game, because it's still competitive, you're still trying to do your own thing, but you're all trying to work towards the Some secret kind of goal. yeah. <laughs> goals, potentially. Yeah. But I think it's really cleverly done, and I had a really good experience with it. It mm -hmm. definitely, Space Space essentially is a dice rolling game where each dice roll you get to do something, whether it's your turn or your opponent's turn, depending on the fleet of ships that you have either sent out or that are in yeah. your base. From 1 to 12. 1 basically. to 12. And you're building up various parts of your space base uh, so that if one number, for example, is rolled, you potentially get more. Mm -hmm. Where uh, if And if other opponents roll a specific number, you can cash in and get an awesome prize as well. So it's really beating the odds and trying to set yourself up for some success. And it's always a joy, and we've had an absolute joy playing the campaign. So definitely would recommend the Shy Pluto expansion. Yeah, I think we still have a couple more scenarios left, yep. but it felt very fast. Maybe it was because, um, maybe because time actually did fly by really fast, yeah, it and it was fun. intentionally very long, but the game is just so good. It just doesn't feel like there's, um, like, it doesn't feel like there's a lot going on, but at the same time, there's so many exciting moments and it's just a great game to play. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one of our favorites. We'll definitely be getting it back to our table again. And that's what we've been playing. Again, my name is Ilya. And my name is Tyler. And you can check us out on YouTube, Instagram, on Twitter as Cover Studios. We recently released our top 10 of 2021, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. But thank you so much for having us and we'll see you next week. What's up, Internet? My name is Paparazzo Dave Chapman. I'm the lead reviewer for the Rathole.ca, a co-host on The Legend of the Traveling Tardis, and I'm super excited to be here for the first What You've Been Playing Wednesday of 2022. Gatherings over the final few weeks of the holiday season around here have been precarious at best, but I was able to get a few games in. I joined in a day of light party-style games uh, that started with just one. Now, wherever you're listening to me right now, Go back a couple of episodes, and Cardboard Conjecture talks about this in way more detail. But in short, the active player blindly picks a number on a card. Everyone else writes a one-word hint for that numbered topic onto their own plastic card. Everyone reveals their hints to each other first, 
Any matching hints are removed and the rest are revealed to the active player to guess the answer. It's simple, it's fun, the components are super high quality, all the answers are written on actual plastic placards, not laminated cardboard or paper. So it's infinitely reusable and safe to be given a deeper cleaning down the road if you're into that sort of thing. We played some Secret Hitler. Again, this is a game that has great production value. I absolutely adore the aesthetic. I love that Will Wheaton comes in and does the secret role audio blah blah blahs at the start of the game. I just don't love the game. There are some really great fan hacks out there like Secret Voldemort, Secret Palpatine. Uh, And even though I acknowledge why some people find the original theme problematic, it's not even the theme that I dislike. The game itself just doesn't connect with me. I'll play it, but I don't love it. After that, we played some Guerrilla Marketing by Alberta designer Adam Wise. This is another one of those great party games that is either a love it or hate it sort of thing. Dice with letters are drawn from a bag, rolled... Uh, And category-specific answers are then written down uh, in your individual booklets based on the results. Those answer booklets are then passed along to the next player. Uh, Rinse, repeat, until your booklet makes its way back to you, and then judging of the answers begins. Winning answers from each booklet build on each other, so they impact the later rounds. There is a ton of randomness with the dice... There's a lot of wordplay, trying to come up with answers that match the random letters from the dice. Uh, In the end, though, the winning answers are entirely subjective. And if you're okay with those sort of things, you're almost guaranteed to love guerrilla marketing. If you don't enjoy those elements, you may or may not enjoy it. As a quote-unquote party game, the thing I don't really love about it is that you are committing to the full game. More so than most, in fact. If you're playing something like Cult Following or Super Fight, people can pretty much drop in and out largely at will. Here you can't do that, so if you don't enjoy the game, you're stuck with that awkward decision of do you just suck it up or do you have to drop out of the game and potentially impact the enjoyment of everybody else. The last game we played was White Elephant from Aetheris Games. It's not technically a party game, but it is a game that works well with that oh-so-difficult player count of eight people. And it is based loosely on the traditional holiday party game, often by the same name. The goal is to, and this is a quote from the book, to enrich your personal collection without accumulating too much junk. Unquote. Uh, Each round is a combination of card drafting and set collecting, with just a touch of bidding tossed in there for good measure. On each player's turn, they take two or more face-up or face-down cards from the middle of the table. They can pay a peanut into the center and steal all of the cards that another player already took that round, or they can clear the gift exchange by taking all of the cards remaining in the middle, face-up and face-down, along with any peanuts and the elephant-shaped first player marker Uh, for the next round. Clearing the gift exchange immediately ends the round. Otherwise, play continues on to the next player who does not have cards in front of them from that round. When all the players have cards, the round also ends, and any remaining cards that are left in the gift exchange stay there in addition to any new cards being dealt out for the next round. When the deck runs out, if you have the most cards in any given suit, That collection of cards is worth one point per card. Every other card is worth the point value showing at it, which can be anywhere from zero to ten points. Uh, Any unspent peanut tokens you have are worth minus one point each. The lowest score wins. Of all the games we played, this one was the one I enjoyed the absolute most. Aetheris Games is a smaller publisher, so this game can be a little bit harder to find, But honestly, it is well worth the effort. It's a great game, and you should definitely be checking this one out. You can find the Rathole.ca's social media, including our YouTube, all at Linktree, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash therathole.ca. Until next time, thank you for listening, good gaming, and goodbye. (laughs) 
What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons, and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? Well, right now we've got The Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth spreading war on the table. We haven't got any new games out yet, so we're going to go back in time about a week or two ago, and we will talk about the last new thing we've played to the show in particular, we played the Hood Scenario Pack for Marvel Champions, as well as the Nebula Hero Pack for the game. So Julie's going to take it away and talk about whichever one she's wants to, you know, I was going to say most interested in, but I think she's interested in both. Yeah, well, Nebula was a lot of fun. I'm going to start about start with Nebula because she was a lot of fun to play. She's different. Um, her mechanics are, are different. Um, you have to get used to her style of play because, you know, cards come into play and cycle through uh, relatively quickly. So it's not like you set her up and she's she's good to go. Uh, but she was a very well-balanced, strong player, I felt. And, and when we got her playing with Gamora, uh, the sisters were just, you know, very cool. Uh, and so I had a lot of fun playing her. And it was fun playing with her when you were playing her and I was playing uh, Gamora to test her out. So it was, it was, I mean, a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> fun, fun, and more fun. Well, and you know what? That's what we said in the review. I think that's what it kept saying over and over again when we did the review. It's, she's just a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed playing Nebula because of her techniques, which is the, the core of her mechanic. Uh, if you're a fan of the character, you know that she's highly trained. So you're going to be putting those techniques into play. What's really cool is you've got some zero-cost cards that will even let you put techniques into play. You then have cards like Lethal Intent that will let you trigger all of your techniques. And what's really interesting about the character is that when you start out in hero mode, all of your techniques automatically go off the first thing when you start your turn, which I thought was very cool. And that's what Julie was mentioning in terms of having to adjust and learn how to play the character because you might have a lot of techniques in play, but if you switch to alter, alter ego mode, they're not going to go off. Maybe you want them to go off. So you really have to balance between alter ego form and hero form. And I think that's something that doesn't happen with a lot of characters. Uh, take, for example, the recently discussed War Machine. If you get the right pieces of equipment out, you're pretty much going to just stay as War Machine like the entire time, if you can. So I really like the way Nebula works, and she's different than a lot of the other characters, but very balanced, as Julie mentioned, uh, in terms of attacking and thwarting. And uh, compared to some of the difficulties we had with the Hood Scenario Pack, she didn't have too much trouble with it. Her and Gamora both quite uh, easily made a <laughs> short work of the hood because they're both characters that are very well balanced in terms of damage and thwart. So let's talk about the hood. When we played with War Machine and Valkyrie, uh, we were quite a bit frustrated uh, with the scenario. Uh, it's it, there's there's. Well, it was hard, and it was hard in a good way. We were frustrated because things weren't going our way, and we were able to figure out why. A uh, part of that had to do with the characters, but I really like everything that is in this scenario pack, and I like the challenge. It, he is he is challenging, and uh, you you never know what you're going to get because of the way that you you know you're picking the different uh, piles, and you don't know. Uh, some of them have a lot of uh, minions others don't others it's just he's getting stronger with weapons and things like that so it's uh it's definitely a, a difficult character but like you said with uh with nebula uh and gamora but nebula it was it was fairly easy to defeat him uh or fell easy we almost lost actually in one of the no we lost our first game but we didn't struggle too much with nebula and gamora because the fact that Gamora can constantly thwart, essentially, when you play an attack card once per round, you're able to thwart. When you play a thwart card once per round, you can attack. Having constant pressure was very good. Also, all of her cards really are like attack and thwart for low cost. Plus, uh, Nebula being very strong on the thwart aspect of the game, but having some incredibly powerful and damaging techniques that are cheap and that let you get it into play you're like oh well i'm not doing any damage this round but the next round here's 10 damage to the face yeah. so it just made it very easy to balance because the key to that scenario pack is not going past that first scheme once you go past that first scheme then things start to really spiral out of control yeah basically it's a challenging uh a challenging new villain uh that's I would say a must-have to add to the collection uh, if you have Marvel Champions. Yeah, just because of everything that you get, he has seven 
separate packs, they, sorry, seven modular decks that you can add into the game. Each of them represent different crime families, so that adds a ton of variety as to what you can assemble in other games you want to play. You know, you know, maybe eventually we'll have Kingpin in the game. I'm sure he's coming at some point. But you're going to have all these different factions that can be under Kingpin. You can also have them working for the Green Goblin, if you so choose, if you have that expansion. So it just works uh, incredibly well. Also, as Julie says, the fact that they are added in randomly means you never know what you're going to get when you are facing off against the hood. And he's not easy. If he powers up, gets his weapons, and goes past that first scheme, things start spiraling out of control, and you're going to have an uphill battle ahead of you. Now, we struggle a lot with Valkyrie and War Machine just because I had a terrible draws coming out of War Machine's deck. And Valkyrie is, well, Valkyrie, and we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> And maybe just in the you know last little bit of time we have here, just you know we talked about the fact that we're playing um, a Lord of the Rings uh, spreading war. Uh, if you're we have we are still having a lot of fun with it. We're playing. We've already reviewed it, but we're playing through the rest of the campaign. If you're you know this is one of our favorite games. If you're interested, go check out our review. Uh, you know we're always happy when we bring it back to the table. Uh, it it is definitely uh, way up there in our in our list of favorites. Yeah, and you can definitely expect to hear us give our final thoughts on the campaign because that'll be a shorter video. So that'll probably be coming out in the near future as we progress towards the end. I think we're finally over the halfway mark. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll be there by the end of the month, if not sooner. So on that note, we're going to remind everybody to keep playing games. Hello everybody, it's Rob and Anna-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello! And we are back again recording for What You've Been Playing Wednesdays, and this is the first episode of 2022. Yeah! yeah. Happy New Year! Happy New Year. We were in every episode last year of 2021, and we're going to try to do the same. Keeping that streak <laughs> alive. Um, by by talking about this game, we played one game in particular this week. What game is that, Anna-Marie? That game is Jamaica, designed by Bruno Catala, M. Braff, and S. Pochon, and artwork by Matthew Laysen, and this is published by Space Cowboys. Yep, Jamaica. So this is a race game. Yeah. Um, pirate racing game. And, and I it's guess not it's based new. off of real events, is what it sounded like. Like there was this captain back in the yeah like, uh, yeah no it's really neat actually on the back of the rule book they've got biographies of like your characters in the seventeen hundreds yeah yeah or something like late sixteen hundreds yeah. early seventeen hundreds and it's neat it just it's got um it's got all the little histories and little biographies on there and I thought that was really neat a neat little touch yeah. that they didn't need to do yeah and it talks about they're doing this race around the yeah. islands of Jamaica yeah it was the um, Governor, and I, I don't know if it's Captain Morgan, the same guy yeah, they make the yeah. rum, right? Henry Morgan or whatever. So he became governor of Jamaica, and uh, in, instead of being a good governor, he just basically brought all his cronies in to, hey, come here, and we can just do what we want with for <laughs> with no punishment. And, yeah. So then, uh, then yeah, he, after I don't know how many years it was, but he started this thing, and basically to commemorate his, I think, 20th year as governor or something, they did this race around around the island so it's <laughs> pretty cool yeah it's neat yeah and it's so this plays two to six players we've played it with four yeah. um with our whole family so our seven-year-old nine-year-old and us played and so the way this game works is yeah you each represent a ship a different colored ship you're gonna have a deck of cards there's gonna be two dice on the on the board and so whoever goes first is gonna roll those two dice and they're gonna they're just regular uh d6s or no, are they? Yeah, they are. Just yep. regular D6s. And whatever dice roll you get is going to represent the actions that everyone gets to do this turn. But I get to decide, say I went first, and I get to decide what arrangement those dice are going to be in. Yeah, because one is going to be for the daytime and one is going to be for the nighttime. And on your on your cards, everybody has like a, a deck of cards, kind of their own hand. And you pick up three at a time. And in the, there's in the top left or the top right corner, yes. there's going to be a symbol. And so that symbol on the right is going to match whatever die you put on the right-hand side. Right. And the symbol on the left is going to match whatever die you put on the left-hand side. So that kind of determines the, the number of pips on the die face determine how many times you get that 
that action. That action. So, for instance, if I put a six on uh, the left side and a three on the right, and um, of the three cards I have in my hand, I could play one that would move me forward six spaces and then back three spaces. Had I done that the other way, I would, you know, you would have gone backwards six spaces. I had three and back six, (laughs) and that's not going to work well. But yeah, you you uh, that's kind of the way that works. And you're you're on your turn, you're going to roll that die. You're going to set them out however you want. You're going to play what, any one of your cards because you're going to have three in your hand. Yeah, and and the actions you can do, it's going to be moving either forward or back. You can um, get cannons, yep. so you can collect that help cannons. With your combat, yeah. yep. collect food or collect gold. And I yeah. believe that's those are all just those are the different things that you can do. That's it. Yeah, and the yeah the cannons help with your combat. So you're going to end up if you ever end up landing on a same space as someone else, you're going to be chances are it'll fighting happen. each other, and these are going to help you. Um, win those battles and you with the gold gold is actually victory points at the end of this game so you're going to get uh victory points uh depending on how far you make it through yes. the race plus your gold pieces but your gold is actually used to um pay kind of little toll booths along the way too so you're going to lose gold here and there and you have food and there's a whole bunch of spaces where you have to pay a certain amount of food yeah. representing just you know, one to four your, pieces of food. Here you yeah, go. Make letting your crew eat. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're gonna yeah you're gonna do this round and round the table until somebody gets all the way back to Port Royal. So you start at Port Royal, and you're gonna the first person to get back to Port Royal, which is one big trip around the board, is gonna trigger the end of the game, and that round is going to be it. And wherever you are on the board is gonna be how many victory points you get plus your gold pieces. But you can get points from uh, it looks like two all the way to fifteen mm-hmm. in those last well fourteen spaces. Um, Not even. It's like ten spaces. Oh no, because it, yeah, it actually goes up a little. Twelve. Yeah, ten 12 or twelve spaces. spaces yeah. Whatever. So you're gonna get. You have to try to get towards the end of the board, or else you're gonna get nothing. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there's a skunk line, a, a red line that if you don't even cross that line, you're gonna get minus five points to your uh, your. Your game, and you're totally boned <laughs> if uh, if yeah. you don't get across that line because you're just basically going to have only your gold on hand, and you're going to lose minus, minus five, five from that, and you're not going to win this game. I can't count; it was ten spaces, not twelve. Okay. But anyways, ten spaces, and that, they're all <laughs> they all have various uh, increasing increments of victory points attached yeah. to them. So you want to get around this board as fast as possible, and keep as much gold on hand as possible, and. Yeah, that's it. And whoever has the most points wins. It's yeah. simply the furthest person plus the most gold wins. Throughout and the board, what you're going to point out here is... Yeah, throughout the board, there are little places where you've got little treasure chests. And yeah. if you land on one of those spaces, you pick up, take the treasure chest off the board and you get to pick up a little treasure card. And they can have... Um, you know, negative points, negative or like negative gold, positive yep. gold. It can have little bonus things that you can do. Like you could have an extra spot on your hold. Oh, that's um, something we didn't talk about. Yeah. Uh, where you hold your, your stuff is kind of neat. It's actually a really important part of this game <laughs> is that you have only five spaces to put, put items like your food and your gold and your cannons. And when every time you are given one of these items, you have to put it into an empty hold. So if you don't have an empty slot, yeah, you, you have to take something off. Right. You, you can't, can't just not put, take like, your, your food on top of your other food. Yeah. And up, you know, so you have to place it in an empty hold. Or, like you said, if we don't have an empty slot, you have to kick something out. But you can't kick out the same thing that you're putting right. in. Right. So I can't kick out like one gold if I have five gold to put in. Right. I'd have to kick out a food Cannons or a cannon. Or food, yeah. Yeah. And so you're constantly having to... Uh, uh, Kind of juggle and juggle balance these what you're going to do resources along the way, but yeah, no, really fun game. Um, definitely the more the merrier with this one. I think so. Um, yeah. So the, we haven't tried the two player. There's a little two player kind of uh, uh, AI where version you have to... where there's an AI ship you have to kind of control to go around the board. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And yeah, I think that's it for this week. Yeah. So we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Well, hello there. This is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And as we always do, let's get to 
seeing what the board game community here on the Bridge City Board Gamers Facebook page has been playing. Well, uh, let's see. Jeff played uh, Space Base, Riverside, Voyages, Bitoku, and Keyflower. Cool. There's a few games on there I haven't played. I'm, 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 I'm curious. Riverside. I've never heard of that one. Uh, moving on. Jason. Cribbage. A classic. And uh, Micro Macro. Crime City. I've not played that one. Um, uh, <laughs> I like to, uh, I like to uh, push the button on people because to me, it, it, I, I just like saying, hey, it's an activity. It's like, where's Waldo? Right. And then, you know, watch the fireworks ensue. Um, uh, Ryan uh, from Bridge City Board Gamers uh, played with my son, Funkoverse Marvel, Pokemon Labyrinth, uh, Draftosaurus 10, and King Domino. Wow. He's turning his son into a gamer. Uh, also, he played Arkham Horror, LCG, Edge of the Earth, Sagrada, and Arkwright the Card Game. Ooh. Yes, Arkwright the card game. I'm curious about that one because I do like the, the big box game. It's a, it's a crunchy game. Uh, Grant uh, introduced a few new gamers to Camel Up. Well done. Well done. Uh, Camel Up is fun. Yeah, that's a fun game. Uh, Rebecca, Seven Wonders and Uno. Nice, nice. Seven Wonders, classic card drafting game. Uh, uh, you know, it's basically uh, in everybody's collection. Lance. Hero Quest. Yes, I heard that the the um, uh, uh, publishers put Hero Quest back out there, and a lot of people have some nostalgic uh, ravings going on. So right on, Hans, Bitoku, Keyflower, Sushi Go, Dollars to Donuts, My Farm Shop, Terraforming Mars, The Crew. I'm not done yet. Ten Trails of Tucana, Project L. Space Base, Trails, Voyages, I'm going to take a breath here, Riverside, Viticulture, Grand Austria Hotel with uh, Let's Waltz uh, expansion, and Witchstone. And Hans did not sleep for two weeks straight. Uh, no, that's a great lineup. Holy moly, that's a lot of cool games. Uh, the one out of here that I I'm, I'm, want to play again is Grand Austria Hotel. Uh, Ryan taught that one to me uh, when we went to Falcon in Calgary. And uh, yeah, yeah, what a great game. Uh, Sarah played Chai and the adventure game, The Dungeon. Nice, Chai. What a wonderful game. Designers from Alberta. Uh, Dan and Connie, I believe. Uh, Lane played lots of Frustration Rummy. I don't know if that's the name of the game or just the adjective to describe his playing of the game. Uh, and Sagrada. Yes, Sagrada. Nice. Uh, or, as others like to say, with a theme, role player. Uh, Brian, Mansions of Madness, Calico, Azul Stained Glass. Um, uh, yeah, Azul. I've only played the base game, liked it a lot. I don't have it, though, for some reason. But, yeah, that's a, a fun, yeah, absolutely. Azul is a, is a good, good crowd pleaser. Brian, different Brian, Brian C. The other one was Brian H. Uh, Brian C., Tiny Towns and Sidereal Confluence. Wow, was that ever a spread? Um, uh, yeah, Sidereal Confluence is, I think that's like the nine-player resource trading game. Um, and it's supposed to be uh, quite engaging and quite, um, how shall we say, uh, you can never do it on your own because there's a sequence part that's always going to be missing that you have to uh, engage in trade. So it's, it's uh, I've not played it. I've seen it played and, and wow, yeah, it's interesting how these little micro communities develop. Uh, Tobias, just terraforming Mars. Okay, but you know what? Hans gives it the seal of approval. So there you go. Tim, Kill Team, which is, uh, which is, which is, which is, I think it's a uh, uh, Warhammer um, um, genre game. So nice. Also, Codenames, Pictures, King Domino, Wingspan, um, Castles of Burgundy. Castles of Burgundy. I love that game. Uh, those, yeah, King Domino, Wingspan. Those are great titles. Great titles. Sean played Too Many Bones and Spirit Island. I have Spirit Island. It's a 
brilliant game. Too many bones. I haven't played that one. Um, I think it's chip theory game where there's they their their gig is they use a lot of poker chips for their for their uh, components. Kind of cool. Kind of cool. Matt played barrage, um, uh, and uh, Matt played a game that I want to play. Uh, I understand uh, because it's got a great solo. I you know yay for the pandemic. Um, created a lot of solo players out there, but uh, yes, it's uh, I, I understand it's a really interesting resource management game it's got that euro vibe that appeals to me i think yeah all right moving on all right who do we have next we have uh garth uh played uh, a blast learning some new games new expansion to clank in space the search for planet x um wow cool uh john uh his wife and i started gloomhaven excellent uh, and Ryan C.F., uh, getting back into the grind of Gloomhaven, also some Splendor and Wingspan. Wow. These, uh, this sounds like some holiday, uh, over, the, over the Christmas holiday kind of brilliant gameplay. Um, well done, community. That's a lot of games that I want to I basically start pulling off my own shelf and get to the table. Nice. Uh, well, I had the opportunity to play uh, Five Tribes, and um, Five Tribes, if you haven't played it, it is the craziest multidimensional matrices of a puzzle because you've got this five by six uh, tile kind of village grid that is random all the time and uh, each tile has a different point value each tile has a different uh, event on it um, and uh, event or activity or trigger or uh, um, specialty to the tile that is significant in the whole gameplay system because there's about oh man there's about five different levels of uh, of interaction uh, you have five different color meeples that represent five different kind of uh, figures or individuals or, or powers in the game. You have uh, different uh, ac actions on the tiles that are related to um, area control, that are related to uh, interacting with these meeples. And uh, you also have uh, a market that is uh, contributing to your point values uh, scoring at the end of the game. And you also have like any crazy game that, that goes off the rails with so many choices, uh, you have a ability to asynchronously change your, um, I guess, abilities. And uh, that is with the, the Jinn uh, powers or genie tiles. Um, and uh, those are rule breakers, absolutely. And uh, if, you can, if you can connect, or not necessarily make an engine, but if you can connect all of your... Uh, abilities in such a manner that you have this really unique powered system going on, um, then you have a chance at winning this game. But here's the here's the complicated part. Or if you're like my brain, um, it, it just kind of pops out, um, you know, <laughs> like like it it just pops out on the board. But this is what happens. You use the Moncala system. And if you don't know what the Moncala system is, it's a very, it's probably one of the older, oldest games. But um, in, in a grouping, you pick up all of the uh, rocks or objects or pitons or whatever is representative of the quantity there. You pick them all up and then you can make a connected trail, uh, a, you know, a network trail by dropping one at a time, like a Hansel and Gretel thing as you're dropping breadcrumbs, but you have to drop it. And where you stop, the color of meeple that you stop uh, has to match at least one color of the meeple on the tile that you stop. And you gather all of those and remove them from the board. And depending on what kind of meeple they are, they represent different things that you can do. Um, and, and of course, as the board, uh, and this is the basically, that's the move that you make. That's what starts your play to trigger everything in this game. And uh, every time that a player picks up a grouping and, and does the Moncala style dropping, it changes dramatically the dynamic of the board so that if you're, you know, if you just make your move and then there's two others to play and you're, you're trying to read the board, 
give it up. <laughs> completely give it up because once it gets back to you, that board has changed completely. So, I mean, you can develop a strategy, but your mind has to be tactical at every moment. And the moment that it's your turn, you have to be able to synergistically read the board, analyze, evaluate it and analyze it as far as it relates to the, the powers that you've created and try to make that optimal turn. Now, I haven't gotten to the point where I can make the optimal move and create a suboptimal opportunity for the next person. I'm not that good yet. <laughs> but I love this game. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think we've talked about it before, but I might have to talk about it again because the solo on it is, is brilliant genius. It's not in the rules. If you want to try the solo, you can go to the Days of Wonder site and uh, download a, a beautiful uh, copy that looks just like the, PD, the, uh, the rulebook PDF. So, um, yeah, yeah, Five Tribes, Bruno Cathala, I believe, and um, Days of Wonder. Uh, and that being said, that wraps up another episode of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to what we have to say about the games we've been playing recently. And thank you always, big, big, big warm thank you to all the, co uh, the uh, content creators who, uh, who make this happen. And uh, thank you. Thank you to everybody. Uh, that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?